1: The approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You
2: need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing,
3: testing.
1: Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? A warm welcome, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing.
4: And a very good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker.
1: Now, today we're going to be talking about various political aspects of what is still going on in terms of the lift-off from the lockdown, if we can call it that way, because we're beginning with the government's controversial quarantine plans for people arriving in the UK. From Monday, people will have to self-isolate for two weeks, which has drawn a lot of criticism, including from Conservative MPs. But the Home Secretary has defended the move. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, Pretty Patel said it was vital to prevent a second coronavirus peak and it will be reviewed when it was safe to do so.
4: Meanwhile, the health minister, Edward Argar, has admitted that the government doesn't have specific data on its coronavirus test and trace system.
2: We are into the thousands being successfully traced at the moment. I don't have the precise figures because, as you would expect, we're working with the statistics authority to agree the process to make sure that they accept it's reliable. There's a bit more work to do on that.
4: Agar oh did, uh, however, defend the programme, Roger, saying that the majority of people on the Isle of Wight downloaded the NHS contract tracing app. But then a survey by uh, the Health Foundation says that actually just 62% of people are willing to download it when it actually becomes available.
1: And all this comes as the Labour leader, Sakir Keir Starmer, has criticised the handling of the coronavirus pandemic, saying the Prime Minister needs to, quote, get a grip. He told The Guardian the government was winging it over its plans to ease lockdown measures. The shadow cabinet minister, Rachel Reeves, said it was putting people's lives at risk.
0: What we've got now is an exit from the lockdown without a strategy to make it work. And that is really dangerous and very worrying. We need to have measures in place to keep a grip on the virus. And that is what the government has failed to do.
4: OK, uh, so that is the latest in terms of the big news lines. Joining us this morning is Sarah Olney, who is the Liberal Democrat MP for Richmond Park and also the party's spokesperson for Business, Trade and Transport. Sarah, thank you and welcome to the programme. Look, just first of all, give me your view on uh, test and trace and also the idea of this 14-day quarantine coming in, not coming in, confusion. Yeah, so I
0: think with the, with the test and trace, there's a lot of anxiety, that it's not really been implemented properly yet, that there's still a lot of testing to do this uh, in terms of getting up and running, um, and that the public aren't really uh, fully engaged in what needs to happen with it yet. Um, And I think what we're seeing is that infection rates, you know, they're much lower than they were, but they're still quite high. And that when... To be uh, proposing that we move out of lockdown at the speed that the government are proposing, you'd either want to be seeing a a much lower rate of infection than we currently have or um, an effective um, and trusted test and trace uh, system in place to help manage uh, any sort of uh, rise in infections. Hmm. And we don't actually have either of those yet. And so just where we are at the moment, certainly what I'm hearing from my constituents, is that people don't have a huge amount of confidence in the test and trace. They don't understand how it's going to work. Um, and it just feels a bit soon to be lifting some of the restrictions at the speed that the government are proposing to lift them when we don't know how effective it's going to be.
4: Hmm. So then if that is not the right answer, what is the answer in terms of uh, the quarantine? It is The idea of putting new arrivals who arrive into the UK, um, you know, into self-isolation, is that actually not the best way to avoid a second wave? Um,
0: I think quarantine, uh, I think the problem with the quarantine is we should have done it much, much sooner. We should have done it um, much earlier when we first heard about when the pandemic first reached Europe or even when it was still just in China. Uh, I think if we had been more effective at that stage with the quarantine, then we probably we could have um, stopped the the virus spreading quite so quickly in the UK. To be introducing it now seems actually almost slightly perverse in as much as we have one of the higher rates of infection here compared to other countries in Europe. So it seems slightly odd to start now. Uh, But nevertheless, it is it will be effective. And I think it's, as I say, the sort of thing we should have been doing much, much earlier.
1: What about the air bridges proposal on all this, Sarah? Is it something that makes sense? If you find a country that has a low uh, infection rate, can we join with them and safely allow people to go through that in order to have a holiday?
0: Um, I I think, theoretically, yes. But unfortunately, we're not a country with a low infection rate. So while I think it's something we could certainly look at in the future, um, at the moment, I think we, you know, compared to Spain, who I think earlier this week reported no deaths, from coronavirus, they had their first day of no deaths from coronavirus, you know, we're still quite a long way behind the curve. So while I think air bridges can work in theory, unfortunately, we're, we're not, a, as far as some of our other countries in Europe are concerned, we're not a safe country at the moment.
4: No, indeed. I mean, for the last week in May where we have data, the number of deaths is 25% above the five-year average for the UK. There are still a lot of excess deaths. Is the lockdown being lifted too quickly? Because on the other hand, 11 weeks of lockdown is driving most people pretty mad.
0: It really is. And I I, I share many MPs' concerns about the impact that it's having on the physical and mental health of my constituents on on their businesses um, and on children's schooling. I've got two primary school-aged children myself, and I worry enormously about them and the impact this is having on them. So like everybody else, I want to see the lockdown lifted. But uh, I think... Unfortunately, the government has got itself into a place where they're lacking the confidence of the public um, and, uh, you know, trust is starting to fall away. And I think they are losing control of the situation. And it worries me enormously because what we need right now is very clear, decisive leadership and we need the public to be on board. So my concern about lifting the lockdown is is firstly that people uh, will that it can't be done in a controlled fashion, that people will think they can now start to do what they like. But secondly, that it is too soon. And as I said earlier, we've seen scientists this week come out and express their view that this is not the right thing to be doing at this stage
1: now sarah you mentioned the, the school children in fact we're going to be hearing from a school head teacher in the second half of the program who will be giving us a bit of a sense of how that's all working but apart from the the children going back of course mps are going back at least theoretically how has that worked for you and what do you think about the various proposals for voting i mean is it discriminatory against people for example who have health issues mps who can't be there
0: well it absolutely is and um, i mean i just I spent an hour and a half queuing around the parliamentary estate to cast two votes yesterday. And I found it infuriating. Firstly, because, you know, when we were doing it remotely, as we have been doing over the last couple of months, both of those things could have been been done in under 15 minutes. And I could have been getting on with other things while while I was doing it. You know, I've had so much correspondence from constituents and I really do uh, want to get on top of that. And I want to be able to, to respond to, to their concerns. So that, you know, just as a thing was was really frustrating. As I said, I've still got two children at home and it's very difficult to be here and, you know, to be there looking after them. And it's, you know, that then that's quite um, uh, uh, an impact on my husband. The only thing I would say, uh, that the only positive is I, I obeyed the instruction to avoid public transport and I cycled from my home to Parliament for the first time yesterday. And I have to say it went very well and I just want to take the opportunity to encourage people to get on their bikes rather than drive uh, because I think this is a good opportunity to start doing that. Um, but the, the point about discrimination is, uh, is a really serious one. One of my colleagues, Jamie Stone, did, an, um, a, a, did a few interviews over the weekend. His, he's his wife's carer. And he, his constituency is in the very far north of Scotland. It's the most, the furthest north on the mainland. Um, and he simply cannot leave her. He can't have carers coming into the house because of the risk of, of infection. So he has to be there with her. And we've heard from lots of other MPs as well who are shielding or who have vulnerable people in their household and don't want to run the risk of, of picking up the infection. So, I mean, in a way, it's absolutely um, a, a microcosm of, of all of the issues of lifting lockdown too early. Um, And there's no doubt that. And and I think the important thing is it's not just MPs that are disenfranchised by this. It's all of their constituents. And when we talk about, oh, you could just be pairing or whatever, it doesn't give MPs the opportunity to actually make their constituents' voices heard or to give the particular view of their constituents on an issue. And I think it's terrible. So it's not just that it's a waste of time. It is actually denying democracy to quite a significant portion of the population. And I simply don't understand why the government think that's acceptable.
1: Well, talking of acceptable, I'm very, very brief, I'm afraid, because we're running out of time, Sarah. Brexit is hoving oh. into view. Do you have <laughs> any hope that an agreement will come out very briefly?
0: Uh, well, we've got about two weeks left, I think, to agree that uh, we want an ex- extension to the transition. And I, I we've been pushing for that. And it's the sensible thing to do. Like All of the government's energies at the moment ought to be expended on... Uh, on, on, on cracking this coronavirus, and yet they are simultaneously trying to agree three trade deals with uh, the EU and the US and Japan. Um, and the, there is still so much distance between the UK and the EU in terms of what the future relationship looks like. It makes so much sense to sort of take a step back we consider our strategic objectives, and, you know, take a little bit longer to, to, to think it through. But I think, you know, the government has yeah. invested so much energy saying that they're not going to, to seek an extension. that I, 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 I find it hard to believe that they would change their minds now. Yeah. But I think we will regret it. We're heading for a no-deal Brexit because the government are being stubborn, and I just think it's a tragedy.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics.
4: Well, Brexit, in a word, Roger. Uh, The latest round of talks are set to end on Friday with the possibility of the UK leaving the EU with no trade agreement. So yeah, that no-deal Brexit back on the horizon. Bloomberg has learned that the EU is now pinning its hopes... On a dramatic intervention by the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson is expected to speak with EU leaders Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel later this month. He's likely to be told by the bloc that they can offer possible concessions, but only if the UK does the same. Big question, marks about whether that is possible.
1: Well, indeed. And one of the impacts could, of course, be on British industry, not least, of course, the car building industry. This would have tangible consequences. Nissan saying its UK plant is unsustainable without a post-Brexit deal. The Nissan COO Ashwani Gupta has been speaking to the BBC and he said the EU was the Sunderland factory's biggest customer and he added that Nissan's commitment couldn't be maintained without tariff-free EU access.
4: Uh, Meanwhile, on a separate story, the government could change its immigration rules to allow holders of British national overseas passports in Hong Kong. Further immigration rights here in the UK, that's according to the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who says in an article in the Times newspaper that such a move could place passport holders en route to citizenship. Britain would consider the changes if China imposes its national security law on Hong Kong. Johnson says that uh, Chinese plans are in direct conflict with China's obligations under the sino british declaration that guarantees of course hong kong's high degree of autonomy
1: meanwhile some stark news on the virus if you're a british Briton of bangladeshi origin you're around twice as likely to die from the virus than if you're white now this is according to a report released by public health england that found people from ethnic minority groups faced a higher risk of dying from the disease also added that being male elderly or living in poverty also makes a person more vulnerable
4: So those are some of our stories uh, in the politics roundup. Let's also get to our next guest. Unions have raised fresh concerns about the wider reopening of primary schools in England. This after a school in Derby was forced to remain closed this week when seven members of the staff actually tested positive for COVID-19. Government proposals for a phased reopening, starting with nursery, with reception, year one and year six, got off to a patchy start with uh, this week with one union suggesting that there had been only very very partial reopening roger
1: well for now on all this we're joined by simon kidwell he's head of the hartford manor primary school and nursery in cheshire simon welcome to the program good morning and thanks for being with us how has it gone this week
2: well we've been making plans to open uh, over the last two weeks and um we, we're having a partial reopening so this week we've expanded our Numbers just for those key worker children um, and also those vulnerable groups. So, we actually start on Monday expanding our school for those other year groups and we're taking it one year group at a time. So, we're phasing it on the week beginning the 8th of June.
4: So, then how many families do you think are going to send their children back or be confident enough to send their children back to your school?
2: We're looking at 100 children towards the end of next week uh, accessing uh, our school, which is about 25% capacity. So it's still quite low. We are limited with class size of 15. So we only have a maximum of percent capacity with the classrooms that we have.
1: And at the same time, I mean, obviously, I suppose it's stating the obvious that teaching children in conditions at this age, in conditions of social distancing, must be almost impossible, isn't it?
2: Absolutely, Roger. Um, and social distancing in the primary school. And the government guidance reflects that now. Initially, it was desirable to try and uh, distance the children. However, now we're looking at children being taught in small bubbles with a maximum of 15. And we're not looking at those bubbles crossing over. So actually, the government guidance is quite realistic now, especially for our youngest children, that social distancing of two metres isn't possible um, in the school setting.
4: Yeah, okay. Um, Meanwhile, what do your staff say about this? Are they happy about the return uh, and the way that it's being phased in?
2: Yeah, we did a consultation with staff. We wrote um, a risk assessment, which has been shared with all the staff and also the union. So we put in preventative measures. We've enhanced the hygiene provision schools. So we've had 37 additional hand-washing stations built inside and outside of schools. So there's enough hand-washing capacity. We've also secured our hygiene supplies. And we've also got cleaners, um, instead of working at the beginning and the end of the day, and now working throughout the day where they're actually cleaning those touch points and those things uh, where the where the disease could pass from one person to another so we feel we've taken a number of additional steps um, including the bubble including hygiene and including making sure that the adults within our school are social distancing
1: as much as they can i mean it's great to have all those in place i guess but you have to have contingency measures i guess what if as has happened we understand at one school there is an outbreak a group of teachers perhaps suddenly show symptoms of the disease what do you do then
2: Again, that's part of, the, um, part of the plan the government has put in, in place. So with uh, one of the bubbles, which has um, a maximum of 15 children, and if a child becomes ill and is tested positive for COVID or a member of staff working that bubble is tested positive, the whole bubble has to isolate for 14 days. So we could be, have quite a stop start. Uh, uh, start to the uh, school term because it's likely that um, we are going to get uh, people testing positive. Um, Whether that's picked up in school, we're not seeing many schools um, start transmission change but we do know that the easing of lockdown in the community means that people are socialising more or going out more so we have those things in place to to go and make sure that people isolate for 14 days.
4: Uh, So then um, why were so many teaching unions so uh, opposed to coming back Uh, to schools at this point?
2: I don't believe they are opposed to coming back and I think teaching unions share the same ambition as the Prime Minister, that we want children back as soon as possible. However, we don't, the cliff edge date of June the 1st wasn't, um, wasn't right for all schools. For example, my school is located in the northwest of England, which is about two weeks behind London in terms of it's uh, reaching the peak of infection. So our local authority uh, strongly recommended that schools started reopening on June the 8th. Other local authorities have recommended June the 15th as a start to reopen. So I think because of different um, peaks across the country, we just wanted to make sure that June the 1st wasn't a cliff edge date for all schools.
1: Simon, I I mean, I I, I get that you are saying that that a lot of what the government is advising is what you're following and it seems to be reasonable, but there have been considerable doubts expressed in many parts of the education world about the communication from the government on all this and that perhaps there's a push to go back too early in some ways. Do you feel in your dealings that that your concerns have been taken on board, that, that your issues have been represented?
2: I think so. I mean, the governments are working at speed on this. And it's the same within the health service. We, we were told three weeks ago to expect to start reopening. Guidance has been coming in almost on a daily basis. I think we've had 45 pieces of guidance to try and uh, plough through. However, the guidance has changed. It has reflected. They've looked at things like social distancing and made it um, made it clear that that's not realistic within a primary school. So, yeah, the government, um, in terms of the DFE and the, the, the guidance they're getting out, it is complex but we're dealing with a very complex situation, which is changing all the time. We knew nothing about this disease in November. So it's it's important that we uh, get used to working flexibly and working with real agility in our schools.
4: Yeah, absolutely. This is a new set of circumstances um, and one that I'm obviously particularly involved in given that I've got three children myself at home and one (laughs) in primary school. So I certainly um, have been following each of these developments very closely. How much teaching do you think is really going to be able to go on in schools? I think that's also perhaps a concern as parents return. What is the learning going to be like as we're all worried about the health crisis?
2: It's not going to be the same as when we finished on um, March the 20th. Our curriculum is going to look different. The government have recommended that we teach outside where we can. We're still going to have 75% of our children next week are still at home, so we're going to have to have a blended learning approach where we focus on the basics, the basics of reading, writing, and maths in the primary school. And we know we've got no inspections, so the curriculum, um, the curriculum expectations will be narrowed because we want to make sure hygiene forms a central uh, part of our curriculum. Outdoor learning does and also change uh, staying safe so we we need to adapt our curriculum but we want to make sure that the offer that children get who are working from home and the offer that children get in school is, is so, so sorry so, Simon
1: can I just stop you there we had one slight issue with the sound uh, I yeah. could you just say that on that last couple of sentences again for us
2: yeah, so I was just saying school is going to look very different uh, when the children come back and we are focusing on the basics, the basics of reading, writing and maths, but we're also making sure that that uh, work is replicated for the children who are staying at home. and We've allocated a teacher to work with parents and to go and uh, help them and support them with home learning. So certainly the wide and broad curriculum offered that we had on March the 20th is going to be narrowed when we return this half term. Mm,
4: what do yeah. you think happens in September?
2: I think the disease is still going to be with us um, we were unlikely to have a vaccine by then uh, if they keep the class size limited at uh, 15 we're not going to be able to operate at full capacity so uh, it's unlikely that we're going to be back to normal in September um, unless they say actually that children don't pass this disease on to adults um, and then we can go back to class size of 30. Um, but at the moment the evidence saying that children don't pass it on to adults is, um, is very, very small. We don't have uh, sufficient scientific proof that that's the case.
1: And what about the children, Simon? I'm sure you have them in your school, the disadvantaged ones, the ones who in any case were going to potentially find education more of a challenge than some. How disadvantaged further will they be by all this?
2: Yeah, what we've found is the children who are hard to reach, the ones who are disengaged, some children, we may have to go and um, encourage them to attend school by going to pick them up in the morning. Those children haven't engaged with the home learning. So there is, there is a group of children which we really are worried about, especially as that group who are moving to high school now, and we're very worried about those children becoming school refusers. So we are working with our local high school partners to make sure those children are identified because they haven't done any work in the last 11 weeks even though we've made phone calls we've encouraged but it's been very hard for the parents so it's been very hard to engage with the, 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 the children who don't um, don't want to engage so it's important we work with our high school partners to make sure that they identify values, pupils and put things
1: in place. Bloomberg Westminster listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?